very much, uh, Pro Vice-Chancellor, and um, I'm very glad to be here at RMIT. It is true that my first link with RMIT uh, even preceded my links with my dear friend, Professor Breen Crichton, who has worked uh, with me and I with him in important work relating to industrial relations, both in Australia and internationally. But this went back to the time when I was a student troublemaker. Uh, you won't believe that I was a student troublemaker, but I was. I was president of the SRC of the University of Sydney. In fact, I was elected twice. Tony Abbott only got elected once as the uh, president of the SRC of Sydney University, but I was elected twice. So greatly did the students love me and the way I looked after their interests. But uh, I used to come down here to Melbourne um, for the uh, half-yearly meetings of NUAUS, which was the predecessor to AUS, uh, the National Union of Australian University Students. And the question arose as to whether RMIT should be admitted into those hallowed halls. Uh, and ultimately, uh, with my support, it was. Uh, and uh, so it has been since the recognition that RMIT is a tertiary institution of great distinction. And I'm very glad that the uh, Department of Faculty of Business and Law uh, has, has been established and gives uh, law degrees, JD degrees, to large numbers of people who then go out and practice law uh, in the legal profession. It's a very unusual profession. It's a profession that uh, has an intellectual discipline, but also a moral foundation in that it's concerned with justice, which is a moral uh, pursuit. Uh, and uh, it is a profession that has great power. Uh, it's a profession that offers uh, some of its members in mid-career to move out of the private sector where they've been acting for individual clients uh, into the judiciary or other high offices and thereby to take part in the government of the country. Uh, this is something that doesn't happen really with any other profession. Maybe theology has a few people who wander into uh, public influence and power, but the law has plenty of people who have that opportunity. And that's all part of a very uh, interesting, unusual, special um, British invention of taking the leading judges at about the age of 45 or 50 and lifting them out of their position as private legal practitioners and putting them into the position as public office holders. It's uh, a system that um, chooses people uh, and uh, yet they still retain that element uh, of uh, their private training. They don't see themselves. I never saw myself as a public servant. They see themselves as servants of the people, but not as part of the government machinery. And I always thought that one of the reasons why the judiciary uh, in English-speaking countries tends to have a greater standing and a greater respect and a greater power and a greater tradition uh, is because we choose our judges from the private practicing profession. It's a very unusual system, not followed in Europe by the European system, 
but it's part and parcel of ours. <clears throat> now, I said that today I would speak about uh, inside the High Court of Australia, and if anybody is here hoping for salacious scandal, uh, after the kind that we've grown to watch and love in the Federal Parliament, I'm afraid you're not going to get it. And if that's what you're here for, well, you might as well pack up your bags and just go home. Because, uh, boringly enough, the High Court of Australia, like all the courts that I've served on, uh, is a community of very serious-minded, hard-working, uh, disciplined and highly focused individuals who are performing a very difficult, responsible, demanding job. I was appointed, um, as the DVC has said, to uh, the Arbitration Commission and then to the Law Reform Commission. Some people unkindly uh, have suggested that I took the Arbitration Commission because I was about to go off and become Chairman of the Law Reform Commission. But that isn't so. I had practice in the area of industrial relations and I just assumed that that was what I would be doing for the rest of my life. Uh, the Arbitration Commission back in the year 1975 when I was appointed was an extremely powerful and important national institution uh, and I was perfectly happy to be uh, appointed to it. I knew the work, I felt comfortable in it uh, and that's what uh, I was professionally trained for. But then uh, that great Federal Attorney-General Lionel Murphy um, asked me to serve as the first chair of the Australian Law Reform Commission. And the story is told in A.J. Brown's book on my life, Paradoxes and Principles. Uh, and I was very reluctant to take this, the post. But there happened to be in town at the time one of my successors as president of the SRC of Sydney University, Geoffrey Robertson QC. And he told me, you've got to take this. This is a wonderful opportunity. It's, uh, it's a new institution. Lord Scarman has uh, done wonderful things in England in the Law Commission, uh, and uh, you should accept it. And so greatly reluctantly, I took the post. And I served in the uh, Australian Law Reform Commission for about 10 years. My life has been a period of 10-year cycles. <clears throat> After that, I served in the Court of Appeal of New South Wales, to which I was appointed in 1984. And uh, the Court of Appeal of New South Wales is a full-time appellate court. Uh, it's a very distinguished court. Uh, all of the judges of the court were older than I was. Uh, and when I came, it was a slightly rocky road for a little while uh, until they came uh, to the conclusion, I believe, that um, I was a hard worker uh, and congenial colleague and uh, that the court would go on with strength, um, as I think it did. Um, the position of the president of a court of appeal of a state, particularly the busy state with a lot of appeals gives the office holder uh, an opportunity uh, to um, perform the duties of an appellate judge, which is a very special function. It's a function that involves looking at the particular case, but considering the particular case in the context of the legal system and the legal principles 
and the policies behind the law that are at stake. And my decade in the ALRC had well prepared me for my position in the Court of Appeal. Uh, and so it was that for 12 years I did the work as President of the Court of Appeal and I was perfectly happy there. The judges liked me and I liked the judges. And it was a congenial uh, court, uh, very hard working. Uh, in my last year as President of the Court of Appeal, I signed 389 full opinions, which um, is a heavy judicial workload. Uh, and I had to run the court and I had to assign the judges and, and get through the work and devise systems to improve the, uh, the court and its throughput. And that's exactly what I was doing on the 12th of December 1995. Um, I was holding a, a consultation with the legal profession for the purpose of uh, improving the outreach of the uh, Court of Appeal to its uh, clientele and trying to find ideas to improve our throughput uh, and uh, the efficiency of our production. <clears throat> and I knew at that time that Sir William Dean, a Justice of the High Court for about 13 years, uh, had been uh, just announced uh, as the new Governor-General. <clears throat> he uh, was to take office uh, in February to, uh, 1996. So uh, on the 12th of December 1995, it was getting close uh, and uh, the government had to move quickly uh, to uh, fill the slot because an election was pending uh, and the election, as we now know, was the election in March 1996, which changed the government of the Commonwealth with the defeat of the Keating government and the election of the Howard government. Um, my, the decision uh, as to who would replace Sir William Dean was in fact the very last decision made by the cabinet uh, of Paul Keating in December 1996 and the decision to offer the position to me was, I believe, the very last decision of the last day of the Keating administration. Uh, and um, I didn't expect that the call would come to me because uh, earlier in the 1990s, um, having taken eight oaths of allegiance in my time, I had become involved uh, on the periphery with the um, organisation which was questioning the push that Paul Keating had to make Australia a republic. Uh, and that was a push which was very close to the heart of the Prime Minister. And if you know anything about politicians, they don't normally do things uh, which uh, is contrary to where their heart lies. Normally they stick to uh, people who are in tune with their heart. But uh, I was telephoned in the morning of the uh, 12th of December to be asked, where will you be at six o'clock this afternoon? And I said, I'll be in a committee looking at uh, the service of the Court of Appeal to its consumers. And that is where I was at six o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, 
As it happened, my brother, Donald, who was a uh, solicitor, was there as one of the representatives of the Law Society of New South Wales. And so he witnessed this scene uh, at a certain point at about 10 past six. There was a knock on the door and that was very unusual uh, because one, when the judges are in session with any committee, there's never any interruptions. But in came my associate, Nick James, and he had a little post-it sticker which was passed one to another along the table until ultimately it came to me and it said, please ring the Federal Attorney-General. And so I rang the Federal Attorney-General and he said, I have the honour to invite you to accept appointment as Justice of the High Court of Australia. And I thought, well, will I ask him the salary? <laughs> Well, I ask him what the perquisites are of this position. Uh, I paused for a dramatic effect for a short time, and then I said, I have the honour to accept appointment as a Justice of the High Court of Australia. And that was it. Uh, that night, the uh, proposal went to the Federal Executive Council, uh, and uh, the, the uh, decision of the Federal Executive Council to appoint me was announced and uh, it was all over. I had been for 12 years the President of the Court of Appeal of New South Wales and now I was to be a Justice of the High Court. Because the High Court building in Canberra opened in 1980 had followed my appointment in 1975 to the Arbitration Commission and to the Law Reform Commission, I had never as a barrister appeared in the new High Court building and I didn't really know it. Uh, I had appeared uh, in a rather ramshackle building and collection of outhouses uh, in the Darlinghurst Court Complex in Sydney which at that time was the seat of the High Court. As you know the seat had been until Chief Justice Barwick's time uh, in Melbourne in that uh, rather lovely 1926 building uh, in Little Burke Street, but then it was shifted to this uh, court complex in Sydney and that's where I knew the High Court and the High Court Justices and I'd appeared before them and seen them, uh, but suddenly I was having to move to Canberra uh, and to get an apartment, uh, to set up shop and get my chambers and get all my books and gather everything together in the new building. And so I got in a, my a car with my partner uh, and we drove down to Canberra uh, and uh, arrived rather late uh, on a um, Saturday and I went up, I was taken up by one of the security personnel to uh, the chambers that had been Sir William Dean's chambers on the, on the top business floor, the ninth level of the High Court. This is... Uh, a, a set of rooms overlooking the old Parliament House and the new Parliament House. It has a magnificent vista of the Brindabellas in the distance, the uh, official buildings, the administration buildings uh, of the federal government and the old and the new Parliament House. I've always thought it was the nicest chambers in the building. Uh, the Chief Justice's chambers are on the other side 
facing the lake, uh, Lake Burley Griffin. Uh, most of the justices uh, on uh, the right-hand side of the building uh, facing the airport, which is where they would love to be. Most of the judges didn't really like Canberra, whereas my partner and I rather liked uh, living in Canberra and uh, the, um, uh, the chambers were nice and within a very short time uh, my partner had acquired an apartment. Uh, he's very, very into real estate very into uh, property, uh, unlike my ethereal tastes, which tend to be concerned with ideas and theories. He's interested in bricks and mortar. And so he secured a very nice apartment, and that was to be my life for the next 13 years. The uh, room that I had, the rooms of the justices all have Australian timber. Uh, they don't have stucco or or uh, plaster walls, therefore there isn't a lot of space <coughs> for you to hang things. Uh, but uh, my room had Tasmanian maple and it was very light uh, in colour, a lovely uh, golden colour and a really beautiful room. Uh, the, the Justice has the main room looking out on the view uh, the associate has a special room next uh, and uh, the other associate or the personal assistant has a third room and there's a kitchen. Uh, in the kitchen <coughs> we installed a dishwasher uh, because I was given to having lots of lunches. I didn't see any point in being in Canberra if you didn't offer luncheons to the parade of lawyers and professors and visitors who were coming through and um, so I uh, gave lots of, um, lots of, um, of engagements of that kind and it was one of the joys of being a Justice of the High Court that I could do that uh, and invite not only the visitor but other Justices of the Court to come to lunch uh, and uh, meet people because it's good for you and good for your insight into the developments of the law and of theory and of issues of uh, the world outside the law. Uh, the work of the High Court of Australia is of course divided into three parts like Caesar's Gaul. The first part uh, is the disposition of the special leave applications. That is a very important though sometimes tedious part of the work of the High Court it's important because if it's an appeal and you don't get special leave then you're never in the High Court and therefore it's the end of the road and it's therefore a very important part of the work of the Court. The second part is the disposition of appeals pursuant to the special leave granted in the special leave hearings and the third part is the disposition of the, um, of the constitutional writs which are the process under Section 75.5 of the Constitution that permit uh, a person who has a constitutional point to go straight up to the High Court, bypassing all the courts below. Uh, the High Court can, of course, send the matter to have facts fined or other matters dealt with to the Federal Court or to a Supreme Court of a state or territory, but it can take the whole issue, and if the matter is urgent and important, Normally in our country the High Court grasps the constitutional matter and deals with the case quite quickly. 
The special leave uh, dispositions involve getting every month a great pile of application books. It's a very big burden and it's uh, relentless and it keeps coming at you like waves uh, during my whole time in the High Court. Twelve of these books uh, and uh, they contain the matters that are relevant to the application for special leave, the, the, legal, the legal process in the court below, the uh, transcript or parts of the transcript that will be referred to in the application, uh, the uh, decision, the reasons of the judges in the court below, uh, and uh, short arguments generally of no more than 12 pages in which the parties put out their written arguments as to why they should be allowed uh, with the court under such pressure to bring their case into the High Court of Australia. Now some of the justices got their associates to read and analyse that material. I never did. I always read it all myself because having sat in the Court of Appeal for more than a decade and having in that court heard lots of uh, applications for leave, although not special leave, I had a lot of experience with dealing with uh, leave matters and therefore I thought I could deal with it more efficiently by reading the file than by reading the file plus a document prepared by another mind which didn't have my experience. And so uh, I would simply get there on the Sunday and start reading and um, the reading of those materials and making sure that you weren't missing a point, making sure that the parties hadn't missed a point uh, and preparing for the special leave hearing which would normally be on the following Friday was quite a burdensome uh, task for justices. Everyone has to do their fair share uh, and uh, it's remorseless. I've described the process of special leave and the work of the justices and the work of the bar and the, uh, the advocates who argue special leave hearings in a brilliant uh, essay which is published in the University of New South Wales Law Journal. Uh, share the knowledge, I say, and that's uh, published in UNSWLJ and it describes the special leave process and if ever you have a special leave application in the High Court it will do you well to read that and to learn what is involved and to understand that it's quite a stressful day not only for the lawyers who have 20 minutes in which to try to persuade the court to let the court let them come into the court it's quite a stressful day even for the most experienced advocates but it's also quite stressful for the justices because they are conscious of the fact that this is the last hurrah this is the last opportunity to get the matter into the court of uh, into the court of final appeal uh, later in the week the presiding justice in the special leave panel which is three three justices uh, are assigned to the panel um, th that uh, judge will um, call a meeting of the justices and they then come together in the senior justices chambers and they sit down and they exchange their impressions they make comments 
they uh, say this is the matter that's important or I don't think there's anything in this, it's a purely factual matter and it may have been a wrong decision but there's no important issue of principle, and there's no constitutional question uh, and it's not a matter that attracts the uh, grant of special leave. And then on the Friday uh, the hearing takes place, <coughs> sometimes only two justices sit, uh, that can occasionally signal either that the case is hopeless and is not going to get special leave or that the case is clear and it is going to get special leave. So the mystery remains as to whether the case <coughs> is going to be a special leave grant or not. And quite often uh, I've seen uh, judges and I've experienced myself changing my, my mind uh, during the course of the argument because you see something new or what you thought was important is explained away by the advocate. The oral advocacy is not wasted. This is a very intense process of 20 minutes. Uh, and it's quite interesting uh, that I can say, I think, that although in the High Court uh, the court had various differences, as is natural, in the type of matters that get into the High Court, you don't get into the High Court unless the case is an arguable case. Uh, but um, on special leave there wasn't very much difference between the judges. Normally we could agree uh, either that the matter was one suitable to a grant of special leave or that it wasn't. And uh, it was rare that a judge, including myself, would dissent and express a view that special leave uh, should be granted in a case when the majority thought it shouldn't. There are such, such cases, and they're in the Australian Law Journal reports and sometimes the Australian Law Reports. Um, for example, a case which concerned whether a prisoner uh, who was in detention at Goulburn Jail should uh, have a facility either to be brought to the court to argue the special leave uh, or uh, should have a facility of a video link to the court so that they, like others, uh, could have the opportunity of arguing the case orally. Uh, that was a matter which I thought, which in which special leave was refused by a majority, but uh, in which I thought it was sufficiently significant uh, to have uh, the matter heard, and I explained why. Uh, that matter later went to the Human Rights Committee of the United Nations and uh, the Human Rights Committee of the United Nations appeared to think there was more force in my opinion than in the opinion of the majority refusing uh, the grant of special leave. However, um, generally there wasn't much disagreement uh, in special leaves and it's a very big part of the work of the court. In recent years uh, it's significantly performed on the papers uh, and um, uh, therefore the number of oral hearings uh, has been reduced somewhat and this was in fact a reaction to the uh, large number of uh, cases concerning refugee applicants uh, and um, it, it, the court just couldn't have survived giving every refugee applicant 20 minutes. It had to devise and did devise a system um, unanimously agreed by the justices for dealing with many matters on the papers, but there are still uh, quite a few cases every year that are dealt with with the 20-minute hearing and the application made orally before the court. 
generally speaking, the applications for special leave are made uh, heard in Canberra, but uh, the court will come to Melbourne uh, for special leaves, and if you haven't seen it, it's a very good day to see the High Court in operation in its courtroom up in William Street on the top level of the, uh, of the, of the Federal Commonwealth Courts building in Melbourne uh, to see the special leave applications. A very busy day and you sort of see the High Court at work uh, under a lot of pressure uh, and uh, it's quite interesting and if you haven't seen it you should. Uh, in respect of other states uh, and territories from Darwin, from Perth, from Adelaide, from Hobart, uh, the special leave hearings go to the number two court in Canberra by video link. And that was something new to me when I went to Canberra. We didn't have that in the Court of Appeal, but it's a feature of the High Court that you, you hear the special leave hearing by video link. You see the courtroom in Adelaide and the barristers are all lined up and they come to the podium and they address. It's a very interesting feature of the human mind that it can adapt very quickly to the changed technology because you just go ahead as you, you would if the person was at the bar table in front of you and it works quite efficiently. Uh, the hearing of appeals uh, takes place either in the number one or the number two court. The number one court is the big ceremonial court which you may have seen if you've gone to Canberra. Uh, it's a huge space uh, and it's constantly invaded by school children who are coming backwards and forwards in and out of the uh, upper levels uh, watching the case uh, and um, that's a, a good thing which the court encourages because it emphasises the fact that in our country courts sit in public and anybody can go in and see the judges uh, so that they are themselves judged as they are performing their duties. Uh, the court will uh, assemble uh, generally at 10 o'clock and sit at 10.15. In that first quarter hour there will be discussion about the case because by that time all the justices will have read the appeal book and the written submissions uh, and there's a preliminary discussion about what the court thinks are the key issues, what the justices think about the case and sometimes what they think about the barristers that they're about to see. Uh, some of those comments are not always favourable to the barristers and some are even perhaps mildly defamatory, except that this is a privileged occasion and therefore there's a full defence and it never gets out. Um, when I was in the Court of Appeal, one of the judges of appeal kept what he called a list of the first eleven. These were the most hopeless barristers, in his opinion. Uh, uh, I never heard of anybody keeping a Bradman team at the top first 11. Uh, it was always the, the worst performers. And when one of them was before us in the Court of Appeal, that judge would come in ashen-faced uh, at the prospect of having to sit there, trapped, listening to somebody on the first 11 for the whole day. In the High Court, everybody was a bit more polite and I don't think anybody kept the, a list of these teams, though many of them had mental notes about uh, the people who appeared before them. The, the truth of the matter is some people have very great gifts as advocates uh, and they are really outstanding in the way they can synthesise hugely complex 
uh, details of fact and law and present things very, very simply. It is a very special gift. Ron Caston of the Victorian Bar was a person who could do that and he appeared in uh, quite a lot of tax cases. He was an expert on tax law but he also appeared pro bono in many cases concerned with Aboriginal rights uh, and he uh, appeared in the Kuwata case which is 30 years ago uh, this week uh, which was the pre-runner to Mabo and he also appeared in Mabo against Queensland number no. 2 uh, which is 20 years ago next month uh, and you're going to see lots of commemorative occasions and I hope RMIT Law School has a commemorative occasion for the 20th anniversary of the Mabo decision which is a not only a very important legal case but a very important case for justice uh, in our country. Uh, Ron Caston was outstanding. Uh, David Jackson, originally of the Queensland Bar, was also very... I never trapped him out. I tried desperately to find something that he hadn't read, that he didn't, didn't know some small part of the appeal book or hadn't really fully appreciated, but he was always on top of it. Uh, Sir Maurice Byers was a, a great advocate. He appeared before me in the High Court in the Wick case and in the Court of Appeal on many occasions. Uh, and um, uh, Gavin Griffith uh, of the Victorian Bar was Solicitor General of the Commonwealth. Uh, he appeared many times. Pamela Tate, now a judge of appeal in this state, appeared and she was an extremely good arguer. Uh, and so I, I, by mentioning those few, I'm not excluding others, but you do get some who stand out as really, really able in their presentation of argument. Uh, and after the hearings in the constitutional writ cases or in the appeals, the justices will go generally to the chambers of the Chief Justice, if the Chief Justice is presiding, or to the chambers of the Senior Justice, and they'll sit around the table. Uh, Chief Justice Gleeson had been Chief Justice of New South Wales uh, when I had been President of the Court of Appeal of New South Wales for six years when he came along. He and I had been at the Sydney Law School uh, together and had shared notes, taking notes uh, together and so we knew each other very well uh, and he copied the technique which uh, we developed in the Court of Appeal during my period as President and so we would get into his chambers and there would be a big pot of tea and a big pot of coffee and raisin toast. I always found the way into the hearts of elderly judges is through raisin toast. It's not good for them and they shouldn't be having it, especially with lots of butter on it, but they love it and therefore they come together and they have raisin toast. Chief Justice Gleeson, who in other respects was extremely austere in his life and did lots of running and other such uh, physical things, uh, he used to also serve raisin toast after the tradition of the Court of Appeal in New South Wales and that was something new, it, it hadn't really existed before and we would talk about the case and then he introduced another innovation uh, for which I give credit that in the Tuesday after the end of the sitting there would be a video link of the justices to his chambers and if you were based in Sydney, you'd go into his chambers 
and you'd see Justice Callanan in Brisbane in his chambers and Justice Hayne in Melbourne and Justice Crennan in Melbourne in their chambers in Melbourne. And so that was the way that the court would come together to talk about the cases of the last sittings and to share uh, impressions of the matter without any pressure of time to finish the discussion uh, and to get on with other things. We would just generally take up the whole of the Tuesday morning talking about the cases. And that was designed to uh, both identify the issues for decision, identify the allocation uh, by the Chief Justice or the presiding judge uh, of the duty to write the first opinion uh, of the court uh, and uh, the um, opportunity to identify the differences that existed within the court, as quite often there were. So this is the technique that was adopted for the purpose of um, getting through the business. <clears throat> the justice of the High Court uh, have social occasions together, not too many, but not too few. Uh, if you are working with people every day of your life, uh, sometimes you might be forgiven for thinking that you'd had enough and you didn't want to have any more time with, with them, at least that day. Uh, I'm sure, um, I, I can't quite believe this, but I'm sure some of them felt the same about me, <laughs> that they had had quite enough of hearing me uh, intervening and expressing tentative views in court and that they just wanted to get home. And, uh, and so the social engagements were generally on such celebrated occasions as a justice has served for five years, a justice has served for 10 years, or on one occasion with Justice McHugh that he'd served for 15 years, uh, or the retirement of a judge, or the welcome to a new judge. And because that's a cycle that's always going on, uh, and will go on uh, even as we speak, with the pending retirement of Justice Gummo in October of this year, and of Justice Hayden on the 1st of March next year, uh, they will be in the cycle of dinners and functions to which the partners are invited. Um, when I came to the High Court of Australia, there was no provision for my partner to be invited to the functions because there, were no, there was no money to pay for him to come down to Canberra. There was, there was subvention for the spouses, uh, but nothing for uh, my partner. And uh, ultimately that changed during uh, the uh, time on my time on the court, and my partner would come down either by plane or by generally by driving, uh, and he would take part. And everyone loved my partner. He's a very lovable chap, a really nice people, and it was good for them. It was very good for the justices to have uh, him there. Um, even people who, how will I put this, even people who didn't actually love me did like Yoa. Uh, and that was a very uh, important uh, thing for the court, uh, and it was relevant when later the question arose as to whether uh, the Judicial Pensions Act should be amended to cover his position in case I were to perish uh, and not be able to support him. 
that was a pro proposition put up to the Howard government and Attorney General Ruddock said it wasn't a priority but uh, when Mr Rudd was elected one of the things he did was to amend a hundred federal statutes to get rid of that form of discrimination and to provide for um, same-sex partners in the same way as opposite-sex spouses and opposite-sex de factos. Now all of this is told in an award-winning, prize-winning and <laughs> very, very popular book. Uh, and you have possibly seen this book in its earlier manifestation when it was published hardback. But I knew that the hardback cost $35 and even though that's quite a cheap book for hardback, I, I, I wept for the students and I thought <laughs> students can't afford $35 but even a student can afford $25 which is what the paperback edition just out, Alan and Unwin, uh, 2011, uh, A Private Life by Michael Kirby uh, and it's selling like hotcakes. You've got to get a copy of it. It would be on sale at the co-op bookstore and if any of you have a copy here tonight, I'll gladly sign it. Uh, every book that sells, I get a dollar. <laughs> so one dollar out of 25, I mean it's a miserable amount for all my blood, sweat, toil and tears, but uh, it's all in there and it tells the background story and that's what I've come to do today. Okay, well I think I've given you enough uh, to whet your appetite and we will now have Q&A. This is the most interesting part of the lecture because if you don't ask a question of me, I'm certainly going to ask a question of you. And I'm coming down now into the audience to do just that. So think up some very interesting questions because all of this is going to be recorded. But first of all, you can give a very big round of applause to the speaker. <laughs>